Right. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite horror mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is Horror with Heart. We are joined by guest Thomas Gloom. Thomas Gloom is an indie horror author, audiobook narrator, and host of the Into the Gloom podcast. He's a movie nerd, candle hoarder, and lover of all things spooky. His latest novella is the deliciously addictive eco-horror revenge tale, The Potted Plant, which features a witch, flesh-eating plant, and plenty of blood. He's always open to chatting with other horror fans, and the best places to connect with him are via email at thomasgloom87 at gmail.com or on Instagram at thomasgloom. Let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Let's do it, man. I'm all about getting spooky, and if we can bring some heart and emotion into it i am even more so along for the ride yeah so thomas i i just kind of introduced you there uh anything else to add did i cover the bases yeah i i think that's good i'm sure a lot of it will come out as we discuss some of these things and yeah obviously my my heart my emotions play a huge role in my mindset, my writing, my life in general. And I, that'll be completely clear here in the next few minutes. So I'm, I'm good with just rolling with it. All right, let's do that. So going to open up with, with the same question that we're going to be using for most of these questions. And also, side note, listeners, um, I don't know what order we're actually going to be rolling these episodes out in for episode one. We are recording all of them over the summer, and then we're going to drop them throughout the fall. But Thomas Gloom was one of the first people to reach out when we announced the podcast was happening and was brave enough to uh, to take on this very first episode that we're recording, at least with us. So huge thank you to you for that, being brave enough to take the dive here with me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just call me the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guinea pig. So let's go. <laughs> uh, today's episode is centered around the theme of horror with heart. Um, and I feel like to anybody outside the, uh, the, the horror community, that might feel like a little bit of an odd topic, right? Whenever we're talking about horror, the first thing that people think about isn't necessarily the heart behind the stories. They think jump scares, they think death, they think destruction, sadness, all that stuff, buckets of blood. Um, And we have that, of course, but also I feel like the most effective horror movies, books, what have you, are the ones where the heart is really front and center with all of this also. So, Thomas, can you talk us through why do you think this genre is such a good way to showcase heartfelt stories? Yeah, for me personally, I am I've loved the horror genre since I was a kid. And my my relationship with it has sort of grown and matured throughout the years. 
but there's just there's something about it that has always kept me locked in and kept bringing me back for more and I, jump scares are fine blood and gore are fine all, all of these you know the the gross outs the creep outs they all play a part and and an important part within the genre as a whole but for me none of that stuff really matters unless i am invested in the characters invested in the story and i'm not going to personally get invested in the characters unless i can relate to them unless i i understand them a little bit um and if you can give me a peek into their trauma into their fears into the things that keep them up at night once again that's just going to lure me in more that is going to lead me to be more empathetic for them and so if there is a lot of empathy in a story whether it's a movie whether it's a book um i'm i'm gonna be much more invested and so once you start getting invested in a character once you care about that character and what happens to them then when the suspense rolls in when the horror rolls in when that character is in trouble when that character's life is at stake, you as the reader, me as the reader, it, it's going to seem a lot more important. It's going to make a book, book a page turner. It's going to make a show binge worthy. It's going to make a movie something that I remember and want to repeat and come back to again. And if if a character is shallow. At the end of the day, I might have fun with the movie. I might see some spectacular things. I might be surprised. I might be scared. But my heart's not going to be invested in it. And once again, this is just my personal opinion. I'm, I'm going to forget about that thing. And so having heart at the core of horror is very important to me. And as you mentioned, you know, for, for people on the outside looking in, if, you, if, if somebody isn't a horror fan, then... Yeah, usually they look at the genre as a whole as just being very dark and twisted and just all about scares when in reality the majority of the horror fans that I know and love and connect with they have a a a sentimentality that is connected with their very being and emotionalism. And so I, I don't, I don't buy that argument. For instance, just recently, my wife and I were on vacation and we were at this, this sort of like speakeasy bar place. And the waiter uh, at one point asked what we did. And my wife just blurted out, Oh, he's an author. And uh, specific, he, he asked what I write specifically. And I said, horror. And then instantly his face changed. And he was like, Wow, I never would have guessed that. You seem like such a nice and friendly and normal guy. And so <laughs> I, I just feel that that is a perfect illustration about how many feel. But then when you get to know me, you realize that I'm a big softy. I cry in movies. I There are even some commercials that have made me cry before. I I love that because I had very much the same like kind of experience with telling people that I'm a horror author and them having them having these kind of reactions 
Um, William Sterling is my pen name. It's not my real name. Uh, and I started that out initially because I'm a high school teacher. I'm a cross country coach. And I didn't necessarily want all these stories floating around with blood and guts and like kids getting mutilated and my team and my students like looking at me funny. I've kind of grown out of that now. Like I, 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 I don't feel that sort of uh, animosity about it anymore. I guess that's the closest word I'm going to find. Um, but there's definitely that stigma, right, uh, with the rest of society that, oh, if, you, if you're involved in the horror community, if you like horror movies, there might be something a little off about you. And I think the, the shows we're going to talk about today and your books are really great examples of how that stigma is very misfounded. Um, I think if I could get somebody to sit down and watch Haunting of Hill House with me at some point, they'd walk away from it with a new appreciation for the genre. If I get could get them to sit down, read your story, Legend Has It, um, it they, they'd walk away with a different appreciation of it. So I think it's really important that we've got this episode uh, built in here to kind of talk about where the genre can go beyond just painting the walls red. Um, yes, yes, I agree 100 percent. And the more people you can get to read my short stories the better i fully support that <laughs> but no of course, of course we're pushing we're pushing uh check the check the episode notes for a, a link to buy volumes one two and three of horror with heart by thomas gloom shameless plug there we go you said it not me <laughs> but no well, you 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 make a good point too about mike flanagan because i i think that for many people that maybe have certain feelings about the genre, certain stigmas, as you said, if they watch that, they will get a completely different picture and it will enlighten their minds to what horror is capable of. And so I really appreciate Flanagan for his willingness and bravery to, to do that and to do it so unapologetically because when you talk about his, I, I mean, if you talk about Bly Manor, for instance, it's not really a ghost story. It's a love story. Yes, there are ghosts in it, but it's a love story with horror elements. And it is beautiful. It's beautiful. Some of the stuff that he was able to pull off is just absolutely beautiful. And I think that for somebody who maybe doesn't read horror, doesn't watch horror, but loves romance, I think that they would have... They, there'd be plenty there for them to grab onto and say, oh, I know this. I, I This feels comfortable. This this feels like something that I, I know. And then, you know, when the scares come, I think that maybe they would be willing to give them a little more of a pass because they realize it's not just a jump scare. It's not just a ghost attack. There is some heart behind the horror. Yes. And since you brought up Bly Manor. Let's go ahead and segue into kind of the next uh, the next phase of the episode here. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to break down three of Mike Flanagan's films. Uh, what's the horror element of it? What's the heart element of it? And talking about how those two things work in conjunction with each other and how this long form Netflix series um, really helps showcase horror with heart uh, as a theme. So you mentioned Bly Manor. I think this is a really great starting point for anybody that's looking for horror with heart. Hill House has this too. Midnight Mass has this too. 
But if you're just starting out in the horror genre or if you're not really sure if you're ready for this or something like this yet, Blind Manor is a great introductory show because it has those horror elements. But I really felt like when I was watching it, it pulled its punches on a lot of the scares that it had. It had a lot of really great creepy setups. It got to the point where you're expecting something to leap out of that closet at the main character. Uh, at a, what was her name? Danny. Uh, you're, you're expecting that, that, that closet scene in the very first episode to go completely sideways on everybody. And then it doesn't. And there's a lot of that kind of ebb and flow of playing with our expectations that goes along here. That's fun for a horror fan because we know what to expect and we see what he's doing there. And it's also easy for a non-horror fan uh, to kind of latch on to and be like, okay, this isn't that bad. This isn't totally knocking me out of my seat right now, scares-wise. And they can really get invested in the hard element of it. So, with Bly Manor, uh, what's the story here? What's the what's going on with this, Thomas? Yeah, so, I mean, there it's a spooky, there's a spooky house. It's, it's sort of, you know, a, your typical haunted house story. Um, but as, as you get invested in the story and it goes along, you realize that it's, it's not the house. That's the problem here. It is some of the things that have taken place within the house, uh, within the, uh, or on the grounds of the house. But, you know, there's, there's a tragic death and a, 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 a nanny has to be hired to watch over some orphaned children. And when the nanny comes to the house, there's a chef, there's a groundskeeper, there's a housekeeper. And the story just goes from there. And Mike Flanagan does an amazing job of not just telling the story from the present, but also jumping back constantly into the past. And so as the story goes, you learn more about the mystery, what is happening, why it's happening, who's involved. And it's just it's amazing storytelling. And there is love at the center of just about every character. There's there's a bit of a love story with different endings um, and and different levels of tragedy. Really tragic love stories are, are at the core of this. Yes, so with the love stories, we've got clearly Danny and Jamie. That that that's the driving love story for the for the show. It seems like, uh, but then there's also the little kids uh, loving each other and supporting each other in that brother sister kind of love way. Uh, you've got Owen and Hannah uh, that are the the cook and the maid that are clearly um, very. I forgot if they were actually like a romantic interest, but at the very least, there's this strong kinship between them where they're trying to protect each other and trying to support each other through everything that's happening. Um, and the, 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 the setting of Bly Manor really works as a spooky backdrop to keep all of those relations at the forefront of every single episode. Um, that is what keeps you coming back for more. You want to see... Uh, what's going to happen with Danny and Jamie. You want to see if the kids are going to make it through this, and that's really dark and creepy. Uh, but there, there's a lot of things going on surrounding the kids that you're like, I don't, I don't know. They might kill the kids in a horror movie for once. Like, ah. Um, but, yeah. Um, and I think, I think you said 
I don't know if you meant to almost quote the show a second ago or if this was a happy accident, but at, uh, there's a quote from the show that says, um, you said this was a ghost story and it isn't. It's a love story. And then another character comes back and encounters with they're the same thing, really, the same thing, really, um, because the, these elements of love and loss and trying to hold on to the people that you're losing or the people that you could potentially lose. It's what a lot of this revolves around and and coping with the loss of people once they're gone. Um, really a central theme here. Yeah, yeah, it's. There's a lot of sadness in this show and. For for some people, I, I know it might not be their shtick. They, they it might be too much. I know that there were there were times for me and watching both this and Hill House where it was just it was too much. It was too real. Obviously, I, I kept watching it and I like this stuff, but I also need to realize my own boundaries because I uh, one of my my weaknesses or triggers, whatever you want to call it, is that I can easily get into my head. And if I'm watching a show and there's a funeral or there's a death, then I because I am an empath to the nth degree, I can't help but feel those emotions and start putting myself in those situations. And so then I start wondering, you know, what would it be like if my wife died? What would, what's it going to be like when my, my parents die? All these different things, these scenarios start playing out in my head. And if I'm not careful, I will follow them to the degree that I'm starting to grieve the loss of someone who is still here. And that's that's not always helpful. We need to be honest and uh, about mortality and what the future will inevitably hold. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to be living in grief while someone is still here. Because the time will come when I have to grieve their loss. But in the meantime, I want to be present. I want to enjoy their presence. I want to have fun, make memories, things that will hopefully help me um, uh, get through grief. And so it's just uh, that's a a roundabout way of, of me once again applauding the writing of Mike Flanagan because he makes you care about these stories, these characters. And when terrible things happen, you can't help but feel it. You are attached. And they are very real human emotions. They are things that as 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 people we can all relate to. And it's it's very real. You know, a lot of the times horror is seen as one of those genres that are very fantastical. It's, you know, clearly fictional. But when you get into a Flanagan story, you realize that the fantastical elements are really just a vehicle to help you realize the reality of the situation even more. Uh, it sort of it, it puts your guard down a little bit like, ah, this is fiction. Ah, this is fantastical. But it's that sort of letting down of the guard that can get you into trouble <laughs> because he will grab your heart and pull on those strings right so i'm gonna talk i'm planning to talk about this a lot more in the uh the horror for kids episode that we're gonna record eventually but i love how horror can 
get you to those sad spaces and give you a safe place to grapple with them. Because we, even as we're watching this, even as uh, the, 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 oh, what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Uh, willing suspension of disbelief. Even as you suspend your disbelief and you get drawn into the story here, in the back of your mind, you always know that this is a fictional story. The people that you're getting sad about aren't really experiencing any trauma right now. Um, the, the, the people aren't real. These are actors. But we still get exposure to that sort of sadness, those sorts of sorts of emotions that if we're experiencing them in the real world, then there are big stakes associated with that. Uh, and you don't necessarily want that to be the first time that you experience or th think about real loss. You don't want that to be the first time that you think about what would I do if I lost this loved one. Flanagan is really great, like you said, of taking these characters, making them feel real and helping you make those connections to your own life um, in a way that you really bond with these characters. And it, it drives the emotion home in a way that a lot of the more slapstick horror uh movies and video games and stuff like that don't don't really dig into but i yeah. would like to transition now to haunting of hill house because if we're talking about trauma and loss mm. and the reactions to that uh that is hill house's bread and butter so uh it sounded like you had one more thing to add there but then we'll we'll slide over yeah to just, i just wanted to simply say that i i believe that horror when done well is cathartic whether you are watching it, reading it, or even uh, as as authors, writing it is very, very cathartic. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later when we get into some of my writing. But, you know, writing is very personal, obviously. And so you'd expect to have some catharsis there. But when you can feel it while you are taking in someone else's story, like I feel so much with Mike Flanagan's work, I, I think that that is just stellar. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll 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 come back to the writing stuff in just a minute, like you said, because I I want that to be a cornerstone of this podcast as we're talking is comparing the different mediums to each other and comparing the different processes. What it, what's it like to be on the outside looking at these pieces versus what's it like to be on the inside creating these pieces and all the catharsis associated with that. Um, so I love that we've already kind of set that conversation up for later. Hell yeah. Um, foreshadowing yeah <laughs> that's what we're good at we're authors darn it <laughs> we planned this right <laughs> totally um okay but with hill house so um if bly manor is looking at people um experiencing the bad things and really experiencing this loss hill house is all about the aftermath to that so in hill house um, we've got multiple overlapping timelines, but the main timeline that we're we're kind of sitting on in this show is right after the death of one of the Crane family members. Uh, Nell Crane has gone to Hill House for reasons that are kind of murky uh, and killed herself there. And we are looking at all of the rest of her family members trying to come to terms with that trauma, trying to... Uh, find some sort of a closure in the aftermath of their sister dying and the aftermath of years prior, their mom dying in the same house in a very similar manner. And Hill House is very much a observation on how do people handle death? Um, we see this family get 
mad at each other. We see them crying. We see them getting um, get just really getting into their own well of emotions. And something that Flanagan does really well in Hill House, and this is why Hill House, I think, is my favorite of all three of these shows. He does a great job of connecting those emotions to the scares. Whenever there's a scare in Hill House, and unlike in Bly Manor, he leans into the scares in Hill House. We get ghosts galore. We get zombies crawling around in the basement. We get ghosts jumping out of the backseat. Uh, we, we get all the scares we could ever want with this one. But they are always tied into some moment where the family is trying to grapple with their emotions. Um, it, the, the, the scares kind of serve as these punctuation marks on things that were already building up as conflicts, or they serve as punctuation marks on uh, these sad thoughts that people were already having, uh, or these, these conflicts between the family members that were already boiling up. And one of the greatest scares I can remember in horror history is the scene with one episode to go when um, the, the two sisters, Shelly and do you remember the other character's name? Uh, I am terrible with characters. Um, <laughs> and this is this is the uh, uh, of, of the three Flanagan shows. This is the one that um, I watched the longest ago. OK, well, Shelly and Shelly's sister are driving to Hill House um, to to go try to put a stop to all of the evil. And they have been fighting since the very first episode, and they both blame each other for um, not only their mom's death, but oh, uh, infidelity. The- Theodora. There it is, Theo. Uh, yeah. So Theo and Shelly are driving and. There's all this conflict that's been boiling up and they are screaming at each other in the car because all of this anger they felt towards each other throughout the series has finally come to a surface and they're finally in this enclosed space with nobody else around and just laying into each other the way that siblings do, right? We all yell at each other. And as their as their fight kind of reaches its peak, their dead sister, Nell, the go the the ghost, comes flying out of the back seat and just screams in the middle of the two of them. Um, and it is so perfect as an example of this horror with heart, because through, throughout their childhood, Nell has always been the one trying to get heard. She has always been the mediator between the family. And in the wake of her death, we see the family falling apart. And it just feels like this big outburst by Nell, even in death, to shut up and come together again, heal a little bit. Um, but you get all of that in this little half second ghost scream jump scare. And I just think that the build up to that is such an expert example of horror with heart um, that it kind of it 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 is the, the the peak of everything that we're talking about here. I don't know what what are your thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, totally. Because as the story goes on, you know, you learn more and more about Nell and you realize that, yeah, she sort of she viewed herself as the the glue holding her family together. She viewed herself as sort of the. um, Oh, what is the word I'm looking for? It's right on the tip of my tongue. The. The person in the middle trying to mediator. 
Yeah, the mediator. She she saw herself as 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 playing that role within her family, but at the same time, she was always whether it was reality or just in her mind, um she felt as if she was always being ignored. Her voice was often the voice of reason, but it was left unheeded. And even to the point that there is a, a scene at her funeral and the, the, the casket falls over and, and, and her body's hanging out um, and then the camera pans and you realize that Nell, her ghost, has been in the room with them the whole time. But once again, they don't see her. They don't hear her. And so it's a it's a repeating theme throughout the show and so at that point the the tension between her two sisters it's risen to this place of of a a a shouting match and it's going nowhere good and they're about to be in a position where they need to be together they need to have each other's back going into this house and so for her to finally shout out and doesn't she just straight up say shut up is that what she screams (laughs) i don't I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's just this scream, but it has all of the. It, yes, uh, effectively, has, she is just screaming, shut up. Yeah, it has all the connotations. Uh, <laughs> right, there that. it is. But, but they, they hear it and it freaks them out. I mean, to the point where, like, they pull off the road um, and, and got to get out of the car. And so she, she finally got through to them. And so. I mean, it's it's one of those dichotomous experiences because on one hand, she's finally being heard. But on the other hand, it happened. It she had to die for her to finally be heard. And that's that's sad. That sucks. Right. And that's kind of circling back to our original our original basis for the episode. I feel like that's something that horror can do that no other medium really can. If you are going to make the stakes so high that somebody's going to die uh, in order to get their voice heard, in order to get their point across, in order to make this kind of a statement in a show, you're not really going to get that in an action movie, right? Uh, You're not going to get that in a comedy. If, If somebody dies in an action movie, they've probably been gunned down or cut down by a sword or whatever else. Maybe you have a moment there. But it's very hard to develop this deep well of empathy and emotion and sadness without sitting on it for a bunch of episodes like Flanagan does here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, just to be completely honest and transparent here, uh, we're not, you know, having this discussion, we're not total marks for horror in terms of like we 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 can't admit that there are some shortcomings because there are plenty of movies, plenty of books within horror when the the characters are literally there just to add to a body count. Um, but once again, today we're specifically talking about horror with heart, the heart that that really once again, to me, is the best kind of horror is if it's got a beating heart. Um, but yeah, once again, I, I don't. There aren't very many characters in Flanagan films that are just throwaway characters. They're just there to be slaughtered 
um, without a name, without a backstory, without you caring. And that it ups the ante. Um, but once again, also, you've got to keep in mind that here we're talking about these sort of uh, these these one season TV shows where he's getting, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten hours to tell a story. If he had to cram this into a 90 minute, even 120 minute movie, um, some of that might change. So this long form, I believe, is really well suited for it. Um, and short form stuff, it's still possible, but I, I think that you would have to drop down uh, the, the character count. I agree. Um, I guess I should go back and rephrase my earlier statement. Horror can build up all of this emotion. Does it always? Hell no. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sharknado, Sharknado 25 isn't gonna <laughs> isn't gonna give you a nail kind of a moment. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to before we before we depart from Hill House though I do want to talk about one more episode here um, the the bent neck lady episode I would be totally remiss if I didn't act, didn't bring this up a little bit um, but I feel like if if the car jump scare is one of my favorite jump scares in horror just because of all the buildup and everything surrounding it the bent neck lady episode is one of the best 50 minutes of horror that I can think of because. We really hone in on one character, Nell, uh, and we go back into her past and we see that forever she has been haunted by this mortifyingly creepy ghost, the bent neck lady. Um, We see her hovering over Nell's bed when she's a kid. We see her popping up as Nell is getting married and going through um, the, the trauma of losing a husband and the aftermath of all of that and preparing to go back to Hill House, we've got this bent neck lady over and over and over and over again. We finally see at the end of the episode, it, it, the curtain kind of gets pulled back on who the bent neck lady is, which, side note, never a great thing to do in horror, explaining the origin of your ghost or telling us too much about um, like what the creepy thing is in the closet. That's uh, one, of, one of the... One of the rules of horror, the more mysterious you can keep something, the scarier it's going to be. Except in this case, uh, because when the curtain's finally drawn back, we see that the bent neck lady is Nell. Um, Her neck is bent because when Nell goes back to Hill House, she gets hung by the house. Hanged by the house? I never know that one. Whatever. Um, But the, the, the ghost is going back through Nell's timeline. It's kind of unclear if she's trying to warn Nell, like this is your future self, or if she's just dropping in on kind of uh, those you see your life flash before your eyes kind of moments. If, if the ghost being hung is going literally going through uh, seeing their life flash before their eyes and it's transcending into the real world. Um, it's very hard to, to really know. Flanagan had something in mind, clearly. But the emotion driving that episode, you see Nell getting more and more and more beaten down over the years by her family and by how how outside of her family she is and how nobody's really paying attention to her. And it all climaxes in this mortifyingly sad um, death scene. And it just packs this huge emotional punch. Yeah, it is. 
it's Flanagan horror with heart at its best. I mean, if 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 you go through IMDb and you look at the ratings of each of his episodes from Hill House, from Bly, from Midnight Mass, this episode is the highest rated one by far of all three. I mean, it's got it's got a 9.4 rating on IMDb. And I once again, I think that it, that just goes to show that horror isn't just about scares. It is about the heart and emotions and and empathy and connecting with characters because this this episode does more of that than any other episode and it's the highest rated one and and yeah it's 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 absolutely heartbreaking um but at the same time giving you a peek into uh, it's sort of it's it's an episode it's halfway through that season it unravels some of the mystery that viewers have been wrestling with and like you said, it, it gives a peak, it unravels some, but it doesn't show everything. It, it's not like you can just, all right, well, I know it all. All the mysteries are solved. I don't need to watch the next few episodes uh, because you do. But it gives you just enough where you feel like, okay, I get this. I, I can stop worrying about the mystery behind this specific string of the story. And I can just be along for the ride. And I, I do think that letting go of that mystery allows viewers to get more emotionally attached, uh, just a different part of their brain now, a different part of their heart is invested in the story. And Flanagan knocks it out of the park. Right. I, th I think it's the first time in the show that we really see the connection between the ghosts and what the family's doing see the ghosts and all the episodes building up to this but the, that connection isn't quite there until we see that the ghost is Nell um, yeah yeah and it's not all just heart too the horror is there because this episode also has some of the more grotesque imagery um, and and it you get close-ups and, and lingering shots yeah the, the lady with her neck snapped in half ah <laughs> Um, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I think that takes us to let's go to Midnight Mass. Uh, yes. And you have you have a lot to say on this one, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's it's my favorite of the three. Um, I'm a a big fan of religious horror. And this story is, in my opinion, religious horror at its finest. All of the things that make The Exorcist one of the best horror novels and horror movies of all time, um, those those things are present within this story. Um, whether you're talking about frightening imagery, whether you're talking about an ominous atmosphere where you know something's wrong, something is horribly wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it, um, there is a, a ton of trauma with all the characters, but the story itself, it is a slow burn. And you also find yourself, um, I mean, when it comes to Bev Keen, obviously she is the character that everybody loves to hate, but, she um, <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she, the, the actress killed that role. 
Um, like, I mean, I hated her. I hated her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you start to think about, you know, Father Paul, his character is a roller coaster because you know that he is, I mean, maybe not at the beginning, you, you, you assume, but at some point, you know, he's the bad guy. He is the big bad behind um, what, I mean, he, he's being used obviously by an even bigger evil, but he's the most present form of evil sort of pulling the strings and even um, allowing Bev to get away with some of the bullshit that, that she gets away with. But at the same time, Father Paul is constantly, whether it's preaching in his sermons, whether it's, you know, just having conversations with different individuals on a one-on-one -on -one basis, especially talking to Riley in, a, in, in the more, you know, uh, AA side of things, he says things that just make sense. They are kind. They are empathetic. They are wise. They, you, you feel that in his heart— he truly believes that he is doing what is right and he is doing things not just in his own self-interest, but also he cares about the interests of others. And so he does these horrible things, does these creepy things, but then he turns around and will do something redemptive. And so you're constantly going back and forth with your emotions and you're looking at this character and he's just firmly got one foot in the black, one foot in the white, and he's just this gray character. Um, and then even by the end, you know, it, it all comes full circle and you feel sorry for him. You feel bad for him. And his 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 demise is similar to someone like Bev Keen's, um, uh, but you don't feel as bad for her uh, as you do for Father Paul. And once again, it goes into you get his backstory, you understand what is driving him, what is motivating him, you understand that there is some uh, un. I don't even want to say unrequited love because it, it uh, there's a secret, there's a secret love blooming behind the scenes, but it, it's just. It's fantastic. And Mike Flanagan has done what a lot of people fail to do when it comes to religious horror, because usually most religious horror, you can squarely fit it within one of two camps. It is either a it, it gives a, a very apologetic look to religion, specifically organized religion, or it is a completely unapologetic look. It is completely atheistic. It is completely, you know, organized religion is the bane uh, of humanity. It is the, the, the greatest form of evil. It's usually one of the two. But Flanagan, I, I believe, is truly honest here because you see all of these characters and they are differing levels of they have differing levels of likability and they have differing levels of their faith. And, and how they play that out. But they're all wrestling with their faith behind the scenes. Whether you have someone like Bev Keen, who is just a fundamentalist in your face, um, or, you know, somebody like Riley, who is, is pretty much an atheist uh, at, at, at this point in the story. But they're still wrestling with their faith. They're still being honest. And you see characters who, you know, love God, love Christ and his teachings and Christianity interacting with characters that are repulsed by it, and they are able to see through the other person's 
beliefs and faith and likes and still able to connect on a human level and at least find some common ground without just slinging dirt and mud at each other. And that is beautiful and it's honest because a life is rarely black and white. I believe that life is usually gray and that that comes into play even when you talk about things like religion. I agree 100%. I wish everybody could see our show notes right now because I've, I've got this anecdote just already here and you just set it up perfectly. So sorry to get anecdotal for a second, but no, no, um, go for it. My, my wife and I are both, um, we, we joke that she is a reformed Catholic. So she grew up Catholic and uh, I was an army brat. So we moved constantly and I kind of, my family bounced me around between churches, but we were both religious to some extent uh, in our youths. And we've kind of grown out of it. Doesn't sound quite right, but I guess it's close enough. Uh, but we've, we've both kind of like gotten away from the church in our later years. Um, we're not atheists per se, but we just have issues with the whole organized religion thing. But even as we're pulling away, there's always this odd dynamic between there's still people from those churches that we like. Um, she knows Pastor Mike isn't evil. She, he's, he's involved in something that she disagrees with, uh, my wife, but but we're still friendly towards them. And there's just this really odd dynamic every time we get together with those people or with our families or anything like that, where they're trying to pull us back into the church and we don't really want to. And there's nothing mean spirited about any of it. But religion's a really big topic. And if you've got fundamental disagreements with stuff about it, it's kind of hard to reconcile that with people that are on complete opposite ends of a spectrum from you. And that, I think, is what Flanagan does so well in this show, is he keeps that very realistic, very human kind of a conflict alive throughout the throughout the eight episodes, nine episodes, however many it is. Um, there, there's very few pure good characters. There's very few pure evil characters. You could argue that Bev Keen is pure evil, or you could argue that maybe Riley's pure good. I maybe, um, but but even there, there's a little bit of a back and forth, especially with um, what did they name him in the show? Father Paul, Father Paul, and Hamish Linklauter's character you know that he's up to something evil here and there's creepy stuff going on the whole time but then you sit in on those aa meetings with him and with riley and he comes across as this genuinely good caring person and trying to reconcile those two aspects of uh of a person and of their religion with each other it's tricky yeah it's tricky it is you know i have I have great friends that I consider to be great people that are atheists. And then I have the same, you know, uh, I have great friends that I think are great people that are agnostic somewhere in the middle. And then I have people that are very much Christ Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or, you know, varying religious beliefs. And it's e easy to paint with a wide brush. It's easy to stereotype people and put them in a box 
But when you really get to know people, you realize that there are varying levels and, you know, kind of like what you said, it, it's hard to for you and your wife to, to put yourselves within certain boxes or even claim to believe a certain thing or not believe a certain thing because it's all mixed up. It's all very complicated. Um, you know, I, I know for for me, I consider myself to be fairly uh, religious. Um, I, I am a person of faith, uh, but I've also gone through a lot of deconstruction in in my beliefs and and how I act upon them. And so I know that I'm sort of I'm in this strange place that people from my particular religious background view me as a a heretic or backslidden or something like that. And I find that I can have these sort of open conversations about what I believe and how I feel with my atheist and agnostic friends. And they find themselves in a strange position of really finding a lot to agree with um, with a person of faith and or or just shocked at like, wait, what? Uh, you know, re religious folks can believe this sort of thing. Religious folks can view this sort of work and uh, th this this religious work in this way. Um, and so it's just it's complicated. And you really are. You're not going to be able to get into that unless you form a relationship with somebody. And that's the that is the tie that is really holding the story of Midnight Mass all together. It's the relationships. It's the interconnectedness of all these different people. And they have these histories together because they are stuck on what's essentially an island. They all, uh, you know, they've lived on this island for many, many years and they know each other and they had you know, they have memories from being in school together. They have memories from being in church together. They have memories from working together, all this stuff from having, you know, romantic relationships together. And that is just sort of drip fed to viewers throughout this show. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And by the end, it is it's also it's heartbreaking. Um, and but once again, that's that's what I want in my religious horror. I, I, I need that sort of stuff. And he Flanagan doesn't shy away from very strong, overt Christian elements and symbolism. They're all, all throughout the show. Uh, Bible verses are quoted. I mean, entire sermons are literally preached in, in this show. And it's just, it, you don't have to look any further than the, episodes uh their, their titles because they're you know it's book one genesis book two psalms that goes through and every every book or episode is named after a bible book and even you know you mentioned uh, how many episodes are there um in my belief there aren't enough but there are seven of them and if anybody you know knows a little bit about christianity you realize that the number seven is a a very symbolic number within the religion and it represents completion and um and also you know that seventh episode is called revelation which most people know that yeah that's the you know closing book of the christian bible but it's also it, it comes from a greek word apocalypsis which means unveiling or revealing and that last episode is sort of when all of the mysteries are uncovered.
all the all the questions you had are revealed and it's all tied together with a nice little bow and you know I just I can't applaud Mike Flanagan enough for for what he what he has done and what he has accomplished in such a short amount of time. I also really like the fact that you you pointed out it it means revealing because I'm thinking now and episode seven is also where all of the characters make their big decisions right like it, yep. it's the climax so that's obviously going to happen but. Um, Rahul Kohli's character, the sheriff, has to choose between protecting his son and, like, doing his duty as sheriff. And Bev Keen has to make the decision between committing to burning the island down or, like, noticing and recognizing evil when it's put before and reacting reacting to that. Uh, that There's a lot of decisions being made where the character's, where the character's character, damn it, uh, really gets revealed. Yeah. And it's... It's it's a show, too, that anybody, no matter what you believe, no matter what your life experience has has been, you will be able to find a character or multiple characters that you can connect with and relate to. Because, yes, it is overtly Christian religious horror, but you also have characters that are atheists, characters that are more agnostic. And then you brought up the sheriff. You know, he is a fairly devout and practicing Muslim. Um, And he is tasked with coming to this overtly Christian community on this island. And, you know, it's fairly common knowledge that Christianity, especially in America, can often be very um, racist and and very fearful, especially of other religions, especially after 9-11 with with the religion of Islam. And so he's in a very precarious position, especially when it gets to the point where things are going down, wickedness is taking place, and it's all revolving around this Christian church that the people love so much and that they are devoted to now because of what has been happening there. And, you know, there's this scene where it's just like, really? You want me as the new guy in town, the Muslim sheriff, to go and and start poking around the Christian church and questioning the, you know, Father Paul? And and so it just it really is astounding. But even with him, as you get to know his character, there are layers there. He seems to be very devout. But you come to realize that um, his his faith is less about his own personal um, relationship and connection with Allah and more about his deceased wife and her relationship and how he is trying to carry that on because she was much more devout than he ever was. And now his son, who he has been raising to try to be devout, is sort of questioning his own beliefs and he's leaning towards Christianity now. And for this father, for Sheriff Hassan, he feels that he is losing the last vestiges of his wife's memory if his son leaves Islam. And so, I mean, Anybody, anybody, no matter what your background is, no matter what your experience or your religious beliefs are, you are going to be able to connect with various aspects of this show. And and to create something that is so, so much of a scattershot in terms of who can connect with it, um, that can go off the rails very easily. And usually it's very shallow. You know, that's how comedy like cable sitcoms are made. 
Um, but this has depth, it has meaning, and it has heart. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a miracle that he was able to pull this off in the way that he did. He, meaning Mike Flanagan. Right. I, I really want to know exactly how long he was working on this and plotting it out because you're right. Ev- every single monologue is surgical with making us feel a connection towards a character and, and explaining how, how they view the world in this very realistic way. And if we go way back, like we see, we see characters in Flanagan movies and Flanagan shows like carrying around books that say midnight mass. So he's had this on the back burner for a while. Um, but when he finally revealed it to us, you're right. It, 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 it hits all of its marks just so well. Um, yeah. Are you ready to transition to your stories? Yes. Let me say one one thing, though, because you brought up yeah. you, this this idea of, of Midnight Mass. This was actually an idea that Flanagan has had for years, for years. I'm not sure about, uh, how how long it is. Um, but if you go back to Flanagan's earlier film, uh, 2016, he came out with Hush. And in that, the character, um, she's a a deaf author, and one of her best-selling books is titled Midnight Mass. And then, if you look at Flanagan's adaption of Stephen King's Gerald's Game, which he put out in 2017, which is fantastic, one of the best King adaptions I've ever seen, um the the main character Jesse she's trying to scare off this dog that has come to her and she grabs a copy of a book off of uh, the bedside table and it's a copy of a fictional book a fictional novel called Midnight Mass and so initially Mike Flanagan he toyed with this idea and had it in the back of his mind for years and years to write a novel entitled Midnight Mass and then he turned it into this miniseries. So just just a little nerd history for you. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the fruit of that. I know he likes doing that too, working stuff from previous works into future works. Like the Oculus mirror keeps popping up in places. And yes, that's fun. Yes, Easter shared, eggs, <laughs> shared universes and Easter eggs. I'm all about it too. I, I we can segue into my work, I guess, uh, at that point because I do a lot of Easter eggs in my own work. I, I I've created a shared gloom universe. Cool. Okay, so yeah, um, before we dive into the specific works, though, I want to ask kind of a broad stroke question to you. Um, If Flanagan is so good at making horror with heart over seven, eight, nine episodes, and he's got all this time to develop characters, you attempt the same trick with short stories, where instead of getting eight episodes of a TV show, you've got 5,000 words. 10,000 words and you've got to try to make characters that we connect with and create a horror element that we're scared of and give us some sort of a payoff at the end with both of those and that is just mind-blowing to me I'm not a great short story writer I'm gonna go ahead and sell myself sell myself out here not a great short story writer because that to me that feels like a lot to juggle so how do you do that how do you approach a story where you want to create both of those elements like what what's the process here well um it involves a blood sacrifice 
Um, <laughs> loves it involves chanting of an ancient language. Uh, no, <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, man, I let me answer this twofold. First off, just for clarity, um, I do this in my longer works as well. Um, I have a couple novels out, a couple novellas out. It's just not as because, as you mentioned, you know, these short stories, most of my short stories I've collected into a a collection that's entitled Stories with Horror and Heart. You know, and I've got different volumes of that. Um, so I do it in my longer work. But the reason for that is because I I can't help it. I as I've mentioned before, I am an empath. I am very empathetic, sympathetic, emotional, often melancholic. I, I was uh, in high school. I was in really big into emo music and screamo music and all of that. And a, a lot of it, I, I like the sound, obviously, but also the lyrics. The lyrics always drew me in. And I was like, wow, there are other people that feel this way. And 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 it's it's okay. It's cool. It's, you know, you're, you're not labeled as less manly or a crybaby or, you know, whatever mainstream society might want to fling at you when you talk about these things. Um, so, I mean, really, I just, I can't help it. I can't help but have this enter into my stories. But to be a little more specific, when it comes to short stories, I, I think I, I mentioned it briefly earlier. I might've touched on it, but I do tend to have a lot more characters in my longer works, whereas in my short stories, I try to keep it a little more focused and bring less characters into it. Or if there are more characters into a story, like I know that you want to talk about my short story, Legend Has It. In that one, there are more characters, but they're all together in one one location. So there, there there's a lot of close proximity there. For me, I, I just I feel that 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 helps um, because you can just keep it a little more condensed because when you're giving characters background, when you're going into their history, when you're trying to make a, a reader feel for them, you you have to spend some some time working on that character. They can't be a cardboard cutout. They can't be flat. And that does it. It takes words. And so if you've got too many characters and you're trying to do that with all of them, then you're going to have a novella on your hand or a novel on your hand. So that's sort of my my secret. When you go into my short stories, a lot of the times you are just seeing two people interact or maybe you're getting the point of view of one person that, that is thinking back to other people. But once again, that one person is the 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 similar the similar character that's holding them all together, that's keeping you grounded and keeping you focused on their their heart. Does that does that answer? I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you're one of those people that'll that'll come up with a whole backstory for a character and then and then not all of it's gonna shine through on the page, but you know who that character is before you start writing. Yes and no. It it really it it depends in terms of specifically when you said when you start writing. Um, because it's different. I, I know that for a lot of people, they usually fall into one of two camps. They're either a, a plotter or a pantser. They either have, they know, they, they plot everything out. They know everything down to what is the character's favorite food? What is their worst memory? What is their hair color? What was that girl's name that they dated in seventh grade? You know, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, but then there are other people that just sort of just start writing. I, I fall somewhere in the middle. I do a little bit of both with my writing, but I also, you know, when you talk about my novel Voodoo Child, that was very much plotted. I, I did a lot of plotting with that. I followed the um, uh, save the cat method of, of outlining with that, and I followed it pretty strictly. Wait, but then let's pause there. What? What? <laughs> save oh, the cat. oh, a saves a cat. Let me, hold on. Let me grab it off my bookshelf so I can do okay. a, a better service. So there is a a book on writing movies, on writing screenplays called Save the Cat. And Jessica, uh, that that original book is by Blake Snyder. But then Jessica Brody came out with a book that's called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. And what it does is it breaks down many genres and shows you how to write those following a certain method of outlining. And that whole, that concept of um, Save the Cat it comes from the idea that if you have a your main protagonist, if you want people to like them fairly quickly, then they need to do something heroic within the first few pages, like save a cat. Um, so that that's that's okay. where it comes from. Yeah. Okay. So back to um, lost my place back to voodoo child um so this is your novel and you said you were outlining it with the with the save the cat theory and i think that's where i interrupted yeah. you <laughs> yeah but then my my debut novel the window i didn't do any outlining i literally just pantsed my way through that whole thing and then i have short stories that i have done some planning for done some plotting for then other ones where I just sit down and write it all out. There's some where maybe I'll start writing it out, sort of pantsing it, and then get stuck and maybe do a little plotting, do a little planning. So I'm just – I'm a mixed bag. I don't really fit into either camp, and I don't fit squarely in the middle too because it's not always a mixture. Sometimes it's a mixture. Sometimes it's one or the other. <laughs> um so I'm I'm weird in that way. I, I don't know a lot of other writers that that do that. They usually can say I fit firmly into one camp or the other or I'm sort of in the middle. Um, I, I I just sort of go with the flow and it depends on my root mood. It depends on the story. It depends on the reason why I'm writing something at, at that moment. It's just. I'm I'm weird. I'm very weird. <laughs> You're versatile. <laughs> Man of many talents, plotting and pantsing and mixing and matching. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I'm just <laughs> art-wheeling my way through life, trying to figure it out as I go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then let's get into two of your stories. So I read Horror with Heart Volume 3, uh, and two of the stories from there really stood out to me as great examples of Horror with Heart. Um, you've got a story in there called Blue Death which is about a father and a son that have kind of a strained relationship and they're that uh, they're taking one last shot at fixing that. Uh, and then you've got a story called the legend has it uh, where a group of kids are getting together to sell, tell some, uh, 
some scary stories. So which of those would you like to talk about first? Uh, what's the horror here? What's the heart here? Let, let's jump into Blue Death first. All right, let's do it. So w- one thing that I I do, and let, let me know, just just be honest here. Did you like or just really not care about the fact that after each of my short stories in my collections that I have some story notes. That was great to me. Okay. Um, partially because I was getting ready for this interview and it gave me a little bit more insight into, into you. So I would know a little bit more of what to ask. So um, sh- shameless there, but also I do like sitting down and thinking clearly if we're doing a podcast right now about processes and how people are coming up with these ideas, I really like those little like two-page snapshots of here's what I was thinking, here's where this story came from, um, he, both of these stories are ending with people laughing, uh, making little connections like that that I as the reader might have totally missed out on. I feel like it gives all of the stories just a little bit more depth and a little bit more background other than just what's on the page. So I'm a big fan of that, but may, maybe that's just me being an ultra nerd. Yeah, and you know, I'm I. I'm coming from a similar place. I'm an ultra nerd and I love it when other authors do it. I know that the first time I ever witnessed something like that was with Stephen King. And I just really appreciate that with all of his short story collections that he has some notes in the back. So sort of talking about maybe where it was published, where he got the idea, why he wrote it, um, what he thinks about the story personally, whatever is, is on his mind. And so I really appreciated that. But when it comes to art, I am a big believer that it, you know, good artists just, we're not really that creative um, in, in, in terms of starting from scratch. We're, we're just good thieves. We, we steal from everybody else. Um, no, don't give away the secrets. <laughs> and, and so for me, I, you know, when I really like something, my first thought is, okay, how can I steal that? How can I use what, what was done well there, but then also sort of put my own spin on it, make it my own or make it better. And while I, you know, am not going to sit here and, and claim that I, when it comes to writing, that I know how to do things better than Stephen King, I do know that for me personally, the one thing I don't like so much about his author notes and his short story collections is that they are all collected in the back of the book. And for me, I don't want to read all the stories, then go through and read the story notes because by then I've read 20 plus stories and I've forgotten some of them. I want to read the story note while the story is fresh. And so what I decided to do was follow King's example and put the story notes after each of my short stories. But to tweak it a little bit for at least for my own liking and put the story note immediately following the conclusion of said short story. And so that's, that's really how it came about. And I really like it. And the, most of the feedback that I've heard from others is that they like it. And I guess I'm sort of in a place of for people that don't care about the story notes, that's fine. Just skip it. Just go to the next page. Yeah. And I'm thinking back on my reading experience now and, I don't think there was a single story that I finished without then immediately going into the show notes. Like it was there, it was short, it was accessible. And even if I was done reading for the night, it was like, yeah, it's two more pages. Let's see why he did this. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I like the placement. I thought that worked really well for me at least. So blue death, 
Yes. I'm I'm really proud of this story because it initially started as a bit of a joke. And there's another story in Stories with Horror and Heart Volume 2 called Chairwolf that also started as literally it started as a joke. Um, but what I did with both of those is I took that sort of hokey jokey idea and I put some heart into it. And I think with Blue Death, hopefully I put some some horror elements, some fear into it. And yes, it's very fantastical. My my goal with this story was to take one of those 1950s creature features those those black and white horror movies that were so common in the 50s and into the 60s where it was essentially some giant mutated creature they got into some chemical or there was some meteorite or whatever the thing might be i wanted to recreate that and some of the the fun and excitement that came about from that but i also wanted to make it a little bit creepy i wanted to put some heart into it have some real connection between the characters. And then I also wanted to toy with, I really appreciate what Peter Benchley was able to do in Jaws and that he was able to take some snippets and put them into his novel where it was sort of from the perspective of the monster. It was from the perspective of the shark. And so I wanted to do that a little bit with the giant blue crab and hopefully i i pulled it off i know it i i'm proud of the story and most of the feedback i've got was was fairly good what, what did you think about it i i liked a lot of what you're talking about so with this story you've got two sort of kind of three characters you've got you've got the dad and the son that have this big internal conflict to uh to start the story with and then you've also got like you said the the big monster the crab um and you get a little bit of insight into what's the crab's deal where did it come from what's going on here where is it going and why is it doing all this um and i think that's an element that's really missing from a lot of creature features like it's very hard to take an oversized alligator or a massive shark and make people understand why it's doing what it is so I think that's a big advantage to the novel format and the story format is you can just jump straight into their minds and explain a little bit. Um, I, I think that gave your story a little bit extra of an impact. But more so what I was impressed with here was that father-son dynamic felt very genuine and organic. Um, that This is a father who loves his son and you don't go into the son's head too much uh, but you do get the sense that the son still loves the dad, despite everything that's going on with them. Um, and you see the two of them kind of grappling with their broken dynamic and trying to fix that. And I liked how the payoff of the story forced them, very similar to what Flanagan was doing, it forced them to come to terms with their differences, it forced them to uh, kind of solve their own conflicts, even just for a second. Uh, in order to confront the big scary thing. Um, it, it it doesn't have quite the same tie that Flanagan stuff did. Uh, the the A big blue crab was not the source of their animosity towards each other. 
So defeating the big the big blue crab together was not uh, <laughs> directly them resolving their differences, but you saw them take that very human step together uh, towards towards being being whole again. And I really like that. I think that's where you get a lot of this horror with heart from uh, is making making the external threats very personal. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, that was definitely a goal. And it's usually a goal whenever I'm writing a story. And as I've mentioned before, I am also I'm I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. I'm a nerd. I'm very goofy. And I think that some of that slips into my writing as well. And specifically (laughs) this story near the end, I wrote this line and I was like, oh, my God, that is so corny. I can't I can't leave that in this story. But, But I did anyways. Um, and that line is, the world was now the crab's oyster. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell, what the hell was I thinking? But um, once again, I, I, I think that in today's world, especially when you're talking about writing, there is there are so many options out there for readers, and so many good stories, so many great authors. And you you as an author, you have to find a way to stand out amongst the crowd. And I think the easiest way to do that is to just embrace the parts of you that are natural. And for me, yeah, being goofy and corny is that. So uh, while I I don't try to make overtly goofy, corny stories um, since this one had I mean, that was initially the seed that was planted to that, that this story bloomed into was just goofiness. Um, I, I decided, okay, I I can keep that line in here. (laughs) I love it. And then also if we're talking about goofiness, uh, the, the second story that I wanted to talk about from the, from the collection was legend has it. And I think your goofiness shines through, through those characters. Also, you've got these, was it, I think four or five kids, uh, with a with a ghost storytelling club, which in itself is just a goofy concept. Like, I did that. All little kids did that at some point, whether they were in elementary school or high school or whatever. Uh, but it, the kids' dialogue really struck me as just very fun and very, um, very real. It, it felt like I was listening in on a group of my the high schoolers that I teach. It felt like listening in on one of their conversations again. Uh, so oh, let's talk man. for a little bit about Legend Has It and just those characters and how how you made them feel so connect toable. Where's my word? Relatable. There we are. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> writers helping writers, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, writers helping writers, right? That oh man. Writers helping writers, right? That's... Always hire an editor. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so these characters, uh, yeah, there's four of them, Jeffrey, Brandon, Jay, and Nick. Um, And so I'm I'm a sucker for nostalgia. And when I was in high school, I got a video camera. And I, I've, I have years of my life captured on film. And a lot of this is just, you know, yeah, me and my buddies, we made 
horror movies and funny videos and stuff like that. But a lot of it, too, is just like us just doing random stuff and stupid stuff. And there's a lot of just that natural teenage boy dialogue that takes place. And because I'm a sucker for nostalgia, I have watched and rewatched those videos over and over and over throughout my life to the point where, like, I have so much of them and so many lines and things that were said memorized. And so that always helps me whenever I am writing younger characters. I always dip back into those recesses of my mind, that that memory vault. So that's that's been really helpful. Plus, I just love the coming of age subgenre which i think is is very well represented and well done within horror you know you think about a story like stephen king's it that is very much a coming of age tale and you have the, the you know those kids are younger than teenagers but it's it's just it's amazing or the body you know his his novella so i'm re- i'm real big into that that sort of stuff and stranger things one of my favorite shows it 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 comes naturally so writing these characters it it wasn't hard i'm able to dip right into that and so that some of the back and forth and the you know making fun of each other and and cracking jokes but still having that camaraderie being being able to switch from goofiness to seriousness um and and back and forth it's important for young characters like that, and especially realizing that some of the things that young kids or even young adults find important are very different from what an adults feel important. There is still, with teenagers, there is still that sense of of mystery and fantasy. And so I wanted to play into that. And so whenever you get kids telling ghost stories, looking into urban legends, stuff like that, it it has to feel real to them. Even if you as the reader are an adult and you realize, oh, you know, ah, this is just corny kid stuff. I, I, I at least want a, the characters to believe it. So that's really what started this whole thing for me. And, you know, as I, I mentioned in the author note, the inspiration from this story came from a book that I read when I was in elementary school called Still More Scary Stories for Sleepovers by Q.L. Pierce. And there is a a story in there that, I mean, it stuck with me since third grade. And this is the story that came out of, of that seed. Yeah, I, I like the coming of age subgenre because these kids are realizing that the world is kind of big and scary and they're going to have to grapple with it. And then you also get some horror element that's big and scary and they have to grapple with it. It just feels like a really ripe age, uh, really ripe kind of backdrop for some good horror. And I think you nailed it with that. Uh, I also, I also hate how such a like cornerstone part of kids dialogue is just being jerks to each other like every kid does it yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah. nice to your friend but also yeah i yeah we did this too <laughs> we made the yeah mom totally we made. <laughs> and i i yeah i have i have videos that will never see the public light of day to prove <laughs> it. <laughs> 
I'm just like, oh, wow. I can't believe that we would say that stuff to each other. Um, but at the same time, they're, you know, if you're if you're working with high school kids and you see it, you know, there right. there's this desire to be grown and there are different things that are done and said in order for them to prove it to others, to themselves, maybe convince themselves that they are grown. But they're there. That innocence is still there and maybe you only get flickers of it. Maybe you only get small glimpses of it. But that innocence is still there. And so I wanted to, even though I was I was telling this story and focusing on these four teenage boys, which, you know, oftentimes they're just teenage boys. I mean, you know, it's just like potty humor and, and mom jokes and stuff like that. I also wanted to give, you know, some hints of that innocence. Um, and if if you'll allow me, can I just read read something from this story? Of course. Yes. Go for it. This is one of the best things I've ever written. I, I truly believe this. I I remember when I wrote this and it was one of those things where instantly I was just like, damn, I I connected with some certain part of my soul when when I wrote this. And I actually after I wrote it, I shared it with an author friend of mine, Spencer Hamilton. And he responded and said something similar. You know, it was just like, this is this is one of the greatest things you've ever written. So this 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 is a part of the story. All, all the boys, they've come together. They're in the woods. They're sitting around a campfire. And it's about to be spooky story time. All four of the boys stared into the fire. The truth of Jeffrey's plea permeating their psyches. Kids always wanted to grow up fast. But there was a small pocket of time during the teen years when the excitement of childhood and the anxieties of adulthood stood out in stark contrast. The last gasps of innocence, which allowed them to get lost in the fictional world of spooky tales, would soon be gone forever. And as the four sat, hypnotized by the flickering flames, they made the decision to be once more intoxicated by the power of story. And... I wrote that, like I said, I mean, that that just poured right out of my soul. I connect with that so much. And scary stories were such a huge part of my upbringing. And sometimes it saddens me that stories don't feel the same anymore. A lot of the times now as an artist, as a creator, as a writer, I'm looking at stories with a more critical eye. And I'm picking them apart. I'm wondering how I can utilize that. And so every once in a while, though, a, a story or a movie can move past that part of my mind and just get right into my heart. And I'm just lost in the story, lost in the fantasy of it all. And I wish it would happen more. But when it does happen, I just I, I want to be in a position to really notice it, take note of it and Enjoy the experience. Be along for the ride. That's magic. That is, I feel like that is the core of what we've been driving at this whole episode. And we've phrased it a bunch of different ways. And we've, we've mentioned different scenes or different moments from horror uh, where, where we really get those ideas across. But yes, yes, 100%. Um, I had one more follow-up question. But 
yeah. what you just said feels like such a perfect way to end the episode. I almost feel bad asking it. <laughs> <laughs> but anybody listening, if you want to stop right here and just call it a day, that we are not getting any better than that. We nailed it. There it is, Thomas. <laughs> nailed um, it. But but for one more question, just to just to round out the show notes for the sake of doing it, um, let's say hypothetical, you got a million dollars or millions of dollars, depending on what you want to do here. You, you've got millions of dollars. You've got a publisher. You've got a studio. You've got a gaming company. You've got whatever it is to support your creative vision with no notes. If this is the Killer Mediums podcast, what would you create to best showcase horror with heart? Is it a limited run TV series like Mike Flanagan did? Would it be another novel or short stories like you've been writing? Where would you take this? How how would you best show the world a good horror with heart kind of a story? So movies were my first love. And that was as as a kid that was always my dream to make movies and i did a lot of that in high school made a lot of movies with my friends i mean even before high school middle school and actually one of my best friends is currently he lives in la now he studied film at the university of alabama and then he went to usc to film school there and now he shoots movies and commercials and shows and he always says that i'm the reason for that and all those stupid movies that we used to film in high school that that sort of gave him his heart and desire for film and you know sometimes i look at that and i'm just like oh man that should have been me that should have been me and so that love will never fade away. It'll never go away. And, you know, we we talk and we joke about that, that, you know, he's like one day when, you know, I'm a, a big name DP in Hollywood. And when you're a big name author and we've got some clout, we need to get together and make a movie together. So I I still have those dreams. I still have those aspirations. And so if there, if there was no limit here. If I had the budget, then I I would probably go Mike Flanagan's route. I'd want to do a limited run series, something where I had, you know, seven to ten hours to really invest in characters, tell a full story, maybe take some side roads, bring it back full circle. So that would be my goal. And honestly, I know that Midnight Mass is is really good and in many ways perfect in in my eyes for what I love in a a horror story, specifically a religious horror story. But I also don't feel like just because there is one masterpiece that you can't continue to make more movies, shows, art, whatever in that same vein. And so I'm currently my my current work in progress is a southern religious horror novel and i'm over 33,000 words into it and i it is it will end up the way it's looking now i i believe it's going to end up being the longest thing i've ever written 
and the most expansive in terms of characters and how how many characters and how deep I go into them. And so I, I just I really as I'm writing this, I am in my mind, I'm seeing it play out on film. And and so I I haven't plotted this whole thing out, but I know where it's going. I know how it's going to wrap up. I know the climax and it would look killer on film. So that that's the route I would go. I would want to finish this novel and then turn it into a screenplay and be able to put seven to ten hours worth of film together and release it as a limited series. Very cool. I hope you get your chance to do that because that sounds great. And also, even if you don't, once that novel drops, I am there for it. <laughs> sign sign me up for the pre-order already because Southern religious horror, like that's who. Yeah, that's my bag. Um, oh, right. awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm originally from Alabama. And so I am a I am a Southern boy at heart. And if if you're into Southern stories, I I, I think you'll probably like Voodoo Child, too. So if you get a, an opportunity to check that one out, I think you dig it. Will do. Yeah, I am. I am Georgia based. So ah, OK, all, all the deep South horror. It's a little closer to home than I would like. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't, I don't shy away from some of the, the <laughs> ugly scars and open wounds and warts of the South either. But yes, because we we have plenty, don't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but I don't, I don't think it's healthy to hide them or pretend like they're not there either, just for the sake of. Um, excitement or enjoyment in the story i i like i i I believe in honesty and storytelling even if it's fantastical horror fiction (laughs) yeah you've got to keep it you've got to keep it grounded in what's really happening and what would really happen yeah yeah I, i like it all right well thomas thank you so much for joining us today on the killer mediums podcast uh could you tell us one more time where can we find you you can find me on Instagram, just at Thomas Gloom. I've also gotten more active on TikTok the past few weeks, and I plan to stick with that. So if you're into a little bit of goofiness, but also showing off some books and movies, giving some reviews and sharing some of my hopes and dreams for the future of horror, then check me out on TikTok. But really, if you just go to www.thomasgloom.com, You can find links to all of my various socials, where I am all over the place, even Letterboxd. You can see some movie reviews. You can see my watch diary, what what I'm watching and when. And you can also find out more about all the stories that I've written and even pick up some signed copies of my paperbacks, all at thomasgloom.com. Very good. And then to everybody listening, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or offer your bleeding heart to the streaming service of your choosing, and we will see you next time. I'm William Sterling, and this has been another episode of the Killer Mediums Podcast.